are our king, and we come before you, and we, we bow down, and we worship you, Lord. We love you. I pray that you would open our hearts this morning, that we might hear from you the living word. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So what would be your description, your version of paradise? Many of us kind of have these, carry these images in our minds of, of what we would envision paradise to be. So I'd invite you to think about that for a moment. What would be your version of paradise? Well, my daughter and I, Marin, one of my daughters, we had a wonderful opportunity to go camping this last week. And it was very much a version of paradise for us. It was marvelous. We went to Itasca State Park and we got to watch the leaves changing and we found this amazing, well, we didn't find, my, my wife reserved this amazing uh, backpacking site for us. So we parked the car, we hiked for a couple miles in where we found this, this little secluded lake and the, the campsite sort of jetted out over the lake a little bit. There was this massive pine that, over, that sort of reached up over the campsite which spread all of these soft needles on the ground, which are just, some of you are nodding because you know what pine needles mean. It means nice, soft sleeping for the night. Uh, so it was wonderful. And since it was in the off season, there weren't any other travelers out there who we ran into. Uh, so we were kind of left alone. And get this, there were no mosquitoes. All of those evil, vile creatures had been banished away with the cold weather. Now the journey to get here required some difficulty. It required some work. So like I said, Molly, she, she did much of this. Thank you very much. She found the spot. She reserved it for us. It required some training and some conversations on Marin and I's part. We needed to prepare for it. We had to plan out our food, uh, although I admit we could have planned a, our food a little bit better, but we had to plan out our food. And we had to make sure that we were fit enough, right? for this long hike. And once we got there, we felt strong. We felt like we had arrived. We felt that we had found paradise. We felt that our hard work had paid off. Well, this last month, or last month or so, we've been preaching through the epistle of James. And we've been talking about James being a, a school of, of discipleship throughout this season of ordinary time. And you may have noticed that the gospel readings that our, that our electionary have assigned have, have taken kind of a turn in their theme. The gospel readings have been leading us through the back half of the gospel of Mark, which tend to get a little bit more intense, right? And we certainly heard that this morning in our gospel reading from Mark. So like I said, we're in the back half of the gospel, and this is the back half where Jesus is now marching towards Jerusalem marching towards Jerusalem, and the disciples think that paradise is waiting for them on the other side of Jerusalem. They have all of these expectations that they've been building up for a very long time, and they think this is going to be it. This is going to be their view over the lake. This is going to be the nice places to sleep where the food is being prepared for them. And there's, there's good reason for them to have these expectations. This isn't totally far-fetched, you see. You see, the disciples had witnessed many amazing things that Jesus has done. 
They witnessed the transfiguration where Jesus revealed a glimmer of his glory to the disciples, to James, to John, and to Peter. They got to see a bit of that. They've heard Jesus talking about this impending kingdom of God as if it's just around the corner, if not already here. And they're wondering, when is this going to break out? And there's been huge crowds that have been gathering to come and to follow Jesus. And all throughout this part of Mark's gospel, it's saying that they're filled with awe and astonishment. They're sort of quaking in their boots, knowing that something is about to happen right around the corner. Maybe this is the moment in which the Messiah reveals his true glory. And so like I said, the disciples are entertaining all of these visions of peace and of, of, of paradise in their minds. So paradise usually involves two things. It usually involves some element of tranquility, some element of peace to it, right? I'm sure whatever these ideas of paradise you have, it's probably a calm place. Maybe the waters aren't bashing up over the boat or whatever. Usually there's food that's being provided for you. Usually there's no sickness to be dealt with here. But also paradise usually involves some form of strength or some form of power as well. For the Jews, what this meant is that the Romans had been overthrown in their paradise and, and banished from the land, just like those vile, evil mosquitoes had been banished from our campsite. Those oppressors would be in their land no more. And also, all ev evil spirits would be banished as well. And Jesus has already been showing us glimmers of this as he's been exercising demons from those who are, who are oppressed. So in summary, paradise is a place of peace, but also a place of power. It's a place in our own versions of paradise where we ourselves are in perfect health. You know, maybe we click back to when, when we were in our 20s or so, and we're able to, to run several miles without, without getting tired. Um, in perfect health, very strong, very fit. Also, our perfect paradises are usually, there's no bad guys there. All the bad guys have been defeated and kicked out. So like I said, the disciples are getting closer to paradise. That is a place where God's glory is being revealed. And, but it's that power, it's that greatness at this moment that the disciples are fixating on. It's that greatness that they want to come and talk to Jesus about. Because they're starting to see these plans unfold and they want to make sure that they're partaking of this strength and power. And so James and John two of the three disciples who are with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, they come to Jesus and they say this to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Well, this is no small thing to ask of King Jesus, is it? Now, in the ancient world, the right and the left seats of a throne, these were big deals. These were big places of responsibility. These are places where perhaps if the king has posed a question, those on the right and the left could maybe lean over and whisper bits of advice into the king's ear. It was a place of trust. But also if the king made a decision about something, he would turn to those on his right or his left and he would ask them to, with their armies to go and to carry out his command. So these are high places of honor. Now, this isn't James and John asking Jesus, hey, we just, we just want to be close to you because you're really smart and kind and warm. You know, this isn't them wanting to be buddy-buddy with Jesus. Let's be clear about this. This is them arguing or wanting power in the kingdom of God. They want positions of power. 
Have you ever been passed up for a promotion before? I mean, surely no one in this room ever has, right? It's certainly never me, no. No, but have you ever been passed up for a, a promotion before? That feels awful, right? Especially if you've worked your tail off at this place for a couple years, and then maybe some new hire who's only been there for a few months, maybe he's the one who gets promoted above you. That is an awful feeling, right? You've paid your dues, you've served your time, and then the new guy swoops in and gets what you have been eyeballing for many, many years. And what's the result of an experience like that? Well, you're probably a little more guarded, right? You're not going to be turning to your colleagues and sharing with them tips on how to succeed in the workplace, right? You're going to be a little more secretive with your tips. Well, that's what's going on here. James and John, they are protecting their promotion. They're trying to elbow out the other disciples to make sure that when Jesus starts dishing out his prizes and promotions, that they're the ones who are first in line. And you can hear the entitlement that's in their voices, right? Jesus, we've been with you since the beginning. Jesus, you brought us up onto that mountain of transfiguration. Jesus, we were among the 70 who you sent out and gave authority to go and cast out demons. Jesus, we've been with you for a long time. We want to be known in the next age as the guys who fought by your side, Jesus. Can we sit next to you in your glory? Can we sit to your right and to your left? And you know what? As I hear this story, I kind of get it. Like, I, I kind of want Jesus to say to James and John, yeah, you guys have worked hard. You have been with me for a long time. You've left a lot. Yeah, let's, let, me, let me give you supernatural power, and let's go kick the Romans out of Israel. Like, let us reclaim our land for our own. Like, I, I kind of want to read the gospel that way. Maybe you have movies like this where you've watched the movie, like, many, many times, and you always wish that it would turn out a different way. You know, that's kind of how I feel in this passage. Like, how cool would it have been for Jesus just to do this, maybe this one time, go and just cleanse out the entire place. But rather than saying, yes, you're right, rather than affirming James and John, he kind of sighs. He takes this deep breath. And he says there in verse 38, you don't know what you've been asking. You have no idea what you're asking for. You see, Jesus, it's as if the disciples haven't been listening. Jesus has now three times told the disciples quite clearly what was going to happen. He says that he was going to go to Jerusalem, that he would be put on trial, that he would be convicted, beaten, mocked, and eventually put to death. Jesus hasn't been secretive about this. In fact, that's the passage that immediately precedes the one that we just read. This isn't going to be pretty, Jesus is telling them. And we see that the disciples obviously have not been paying close attention. So Jesus then uses two symbols to try to put this in perspective for the disciples. First, he says, You'll, you are going to drink the cup. Or no, I'm sorry, he asks them, are you able to drink the cup? Will you be baptized with my baptism? And these two symbols, the cup and the baptism, mean quite a bit. You see, the cup in the Old Testament symbolizes the divine wrath of God that has been poured out upon the pagans and upon those who are cursed. The psalmist says this, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it 
and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. And then the prophet Isaiah, in chapter 51, just a few chapters prior to the passage that we read in our lectionary this morning, Isaiah says this, Wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. You see, to drink the cup means to consume the wrath of God and to experience that. So secondly is the baptism, the symbol of baptism, which as we know is a symbol of being submerged under death, to descend into death itself, being immersed and drowned by the evils of this world. It brings to mind the imagery of the flood and God's cleansing power. So both to drink the wine and to be plunged underwater, one kind of gets this image of being entirely consumed internally and externally with suffering, pain, and wrath. And Jesus says, are you able to do this? And the disciples are like, sign me up, totally. Yes, we are able. Can you believe that? Can you believe their reaction in here? They had the, the disciples, they don't have a clue what they're saying. You see, they are so fixated on paradise. They're so fixated on their assumptions of what's going to happen that they can't even understand Jesus, the cup of wrath, the baptism of Christ. These are big deals. And instead, what they're doing is they're more just thinking that maybe Jesus is, is talking uh, in hyperbole here. He's just exaggerating to them. You know, they probably think that this is somehow imagery of just the battle that's going to happen up in Jerusalem. But once that's done, once we've kind of had our victory, you know, maybe a couple of those other disciples will die, but we'll be fine. And once that's done, then we will step into this age of glory. We're up for the task, the disciples say. Well, Jesus then says, very well. You will drink the cup. You will be baptized. But where you sit, that's not my decision to make. Where you sit's not my decision. So I have two little asides that I would like to interject here. So first of all, the suffering that we experience, the suffering that the disciples experienced, that does not achieve any sort of atoning work of the forgiveness of sins for the entire world. That work has been done once and for all on the cross by Jesus Christ. So that's not what Jesus is telling us here. Now, what he is saying is that part of what it means to be a Christian, part of, of following Christ, is to experience the anger of the world, of an, ang of an unbelieving world upon us. Now, the second thing is I'm not going to this morning go into the intricacies of the Trinity. Uh, you, you can see here that God the Son is saying that it's not up for him to decide, but rather it's God the Father uh, we can save that for Trinity Sunday, maybe, so come back for Trinity Sunday. But what I will say now is that part of Jesus' submission, or part of Jesus' submission to the Father during his earthly ministry meant that there were some things that he wasn't quite aware of. Well, anyway, the disciples kind of hear what's going on. The other ten disciples, they hear what's going on. They hear of James and John's conversation with Jesus, and they are indignant they were furious at James and John. And make no mistake about it, they're not, they're not mad at the two because they somehow have it figured out, all right? They're not going to James and John and saying, gosh, guys, don't you know the crucifixion is coming? 
Like, this is going to be really hard. He's going to die. You know, it, it be, following Christ means being a servant. They don't know any of that, or they haven't been listening to that. No, instead, they're indignant because James and John beat them to the punch. You know, James and John were the ones who, were, who got first in line. And what's funny is when you read Matthew's account of this, Matthew usually likes to fill out the story a little bit more. Mark likes to rush us through things. In Matthew's account, James and John are joined by their mother. So it's almost as if mom is saying, come here, boys, come here, come here. We're going we're gonna to make sure you're front in line here. You know, and the other disciples, they're furious about this. You know, and so they start dogpiling on James and John. They're ranting, you know, throwing their rants of anger upon James and John. And don't, don't forget, this isn't the first time this has happened. Back in, uh, I think, the, the middle of chapter 9, the disciples are arguing over who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So this is just kind of the same argument all over again. Well, Jesus hears the bickering, and he calls them over. He calls over all 12 of them, and he says to them, Do you realize what you're doing? You're arguing just like the pagans do. And he says, look at their leaders. They lowered over their subjects. They gloat. They harass. They tease. They mock. They ignite, ignite fear amongst those who are underneath them. Is that really what you want? That's how you're behaving right now. And the disciples, they would know this very well. They know exactly how uh, pagan leaders behave. You know, under Caesar, they're experiencing these harsh taxes where more than 50% of their wealth had to be given away. So they know what it's like to be oppressed. They also sit under King Herod. He's not necessarily a great guy either. If anyone even so much hints at questioning King Herod, he quickly swoops in and puts them to death, as we saw with John the Baptist. You see, in the ancient world, the way that you safeguarded your power was by lording your power over them, by gloating and harassing those who were underneath you. Now, we in 2018 know nothing of this, right? Our leaders never lord their power over us, right? No, of course they do. We see this left and right, especially right now with the midterm elections going on. You turn on the television and almost every political you add, you hear, is vote for me or else. You know, get ready. You better vote for me or else the evil's going to be coming in here. You know, they're using their fear to try to, to try to control and manipulate their constituents, and unfortunately, brothers and sisters, we see this in our own homes as well. Sometimes we as parents can use this as a tactic to control our kids. Quit crying or I'll give you something to cry about. Or when you have your own home, you can wear whatever you want, but as long as you live in my house, you're going to wear what I say that you need to wear. You see, uh, I, I once heard a parent say, it's okay to put a little bit of fear into your children. I'll let you debate about the meaning of that. <laughs> but you see, leaders in our world and parents regularly use their positions of authority to instill fear into their people. And Jesus says, this is not the, king, this is not the way of the kingdom of God. Jesus says, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Strong language Jesus is using. So greatness in the world is like a pyramid where you've got the king of the hill on top and they control everything. But those who are great within the kingdom of God or the kingdom of God, greatness is like an inverted pyramid 
And those who are great are at the bottom, serving all those who are above them. A slave of all, marked by humility and service. So why is this so hard? Why is this so hard for us to ingest? You know, I think part of it is the fact that we live in a culture that worships celebrities, right? Like everywhere you turn, you have these men and women who are lifted up on television or on social media to almost a godlike status. And they seem to have it all. They've got healthy families. They go on these exotic vacations. They have full heads of hair. You know, they're just beautiful people. They have, and everything that they say is, is taken to be truth, right? They are examples of what is good and, and righteous in our society, right? And I think that this is kind of exacerbated by the fact that we all carry these little photo studios in our pocket, right? So it's almost as if we think that being a celebrity is just a snapshot away. It's easy to take a picture and maybe turn myself into a celebrity, right? We're encouraged to promote our, our personalities online. And we're tempted to think that maybe our, our position to greatness is, is so quick and so easy. It's not that far away. We have this idea of paradise in mind, and we'll do anything to achieve it. We want to be seen as stylish, as smart, and as significant. We want to sit at God's right hand. So how do we escape this, friends? Well, the answer is right here in our text. Jesus points us to himself as the example to his life and to his teaching. And throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus, the great servant, acting over and over and over again to those um, who are much more poor and destitute than himself, right? It reminds me of Luke chapter 12 and one of the parables that Jesus tells of a master who is returning home. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. For truly I say to you, and this is the remarkable part, the master will dress himself for service and he will have them recline at the table and he will come and serve them. Do you see how remarkable that is? Christ himself saying that he will be the master who comes and serves even the servants. I think one of the most beautiful examples of this is also seen at the Last Supper when Jesus takes off his outer garments and washes the disciples' feet one by one by one. You see, friends, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. What kind of leader talks like this? What kind of God talks like this. In the ancient world, this is not the behavior of gods. The gods would come down from their mountains and they would enact their will upon humanity. They would come down to seduce men and women into sleeping with them. They would come and they would steal away children. They would wreak havoc among the peaceful. But not so with ours. God made flesh. Jesus Christ comes down not to have his needs met, but to come and meet our needs, to meet yours and to meet mine. And this culminates with the giving of his own life as a ransom. 
and we heard this talked uh, so beautifully portrayed in Isaiah. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So what I'm trying to say, show you here is that this idea of God being a servant to all, this isn't unique to just the life of Christ, but through Isaiah and throughout all of scriptures, we see that this has been the plan all along. This has been the goal of the incarnation. The goal of Jesus' ministry is to capture the love of fallen humanity and woo us back into himself, to call us to himself. So that, friends, is what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. We've been hearing some examples of this lately. We've been hearing examples of teaching the Bible to illiterate and pagan villagers in the Solomon Islands last week. Or hear, hearing stories of Christ's gospel going out and touching the untouchables and loving them. And next week, Molly Lutz is going to be coming and sharing with us her ministry in Turkey of creating these social clubs where people can come and hear about the gospel. It's turning out October is kind of turning into a missions month, isn't it? But this is what greatness looks like. But also greatness is going on here as well. Greatness is coming and arranging flowers as a way to honor this house of worship that sometimes looks like a gymnasium and to honor the Lord's presence. Greatness is taking care of family members who need an extra hand. Greatness is bringing food to someone in your life group when they're feeling the blues and they just need some extra presence. Greatness is what's going on in those rooms over there, people taking care of our children especially my kids, right? <laughs> That's what greatness looks like. And I could keep going on and on and on, but I don't want to embarrass some of the people that's in this room. But as your pastor, my faith has grown seeing the way that you serve one another. It's been a treasure to watch God raise up this congregation and move through you and make his presence known. So if this is your first Sunday here, I hope you see that. I hope you smell the bouquet of the Spirit here because this is a place where we seek to love and serve one another, and we invite you to come and be a part of it. So great ones are those who cling to Jesus, the great servant of all. Let us pray. <sighs> Almighty Jesus, we suffer that we, or we, con we confess that we are selfish, and we exert our power with anger, and, and we say things that we don't mean, we try to control those around us through fear and manipulation. I pray, Lord, that you would remove that sin away from us, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we can fix our eyes upon you, our King and our Savior, the servant of the world. In the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.